can I invite the panelists to come up on stage and the moderator as well? Being a Sunday, I suppose, it's difficult to get people out of their houses. Um, but I'm very, very pleased as part of Corridors of Power to have this panel. As we have heard over the course of the past four or five days, both civil society and the government are extremely interested in, as we are in a historical juncture when we are talking about a new constitution, to involve the public in the discussions and the negotiations around what would be substantively included in that new or modern constitution, uh, as well as have the kind of discussions with the polity and society writ large uh, around some of the ideas that are around this room as well. Uh, for those few of you, I suppose, I think all of you have come on previous occasions. I don't need to spend too much of time, I suppose, introducing you to the exhibition itself, other than to say that what is around you is a representation or par as enshrined in the 72, 78, 13th, uh, 18th, and 19th amendments to the Constitution. And I think it's a wonderful frame for us to have this discussion today as well with uh, both friends and colleagues as well as uh, people who are thought leaders in their respective domains who have very, very kindly accepted my invitation to come and speak uh, on the issue and the topic uh, basically, uh, basically and loosely around how the media can be used uh, in, um, in these kinds of discussions. Now, as the moderator perhaps will also go into a bit more, it's not an easy thing. Uh, the media itself is, uh, is full of internal conflict. Um, the mainstream media is divided along language lines. Uh, there are issues of competency, of parochialism, of partisan political interest, and the interest of corporate owners, the interests of advertisers and marketers. So it's not as if you can take it as a given that the mainstream media, or even arguably social media, seen by many, including Jayampati on the first day, very sweet of him, I think. He has an idea that social media is going to help all of this, and I don't think that there is a full appreciation of how complex a beast that is. And it's certainly no, not, a, not a monolithic entity. Uh, so with these basic things in mind, uh, may I welcome you again as curator to Corridors of Power. And I suppose I have to introduce just the moderator, because the moderator himself will go on to introduce my fellow panelists. Just one word. Um, to, uh, to those of you who may be wondering why there is an all-male panel. Uh, it is not for a want of trying. Uh, uh, I did approach Darisha Bastians. I approached Namini Vijaydasa. I spoke with Hana Ibrahim. I spoke with Dildukshi Handunetti. Uh, uh, and I spoke with uh, Marianne David, who is the deputy editor of the Daily FT. So I approached all of them. And for some reason or the other, one for fear of public speaking, actually, the other because she's not in the country, and others for various other reasons uh, simply couldn't make it. So it's not for want of trying. Uh, I also believe that gendered considerations and gender is both not just the domain of uh, each sex, but also for men to address as well. And my hope and expectation is that gendered critiques of the media uh, and the topic will also come about as a consequence of this panel being constituted and moderated by Asoka. Asoka is better known, I suppose, 
by what he has championed and basically his baby just as much ground views as mine, Mantri. Mantri is a fantastic platform, mantri.lk. And in fact, uh, uh, two of us have been uh, at a hackathon uh, at WSO2, uh, just across the corner, as it were, where they're doing some very, very cool stuff uh, with the Mantri database and the Mantri data. Let's see whether that comes into fruition. But even as it stands, I think Mantri is uh, such a unique uh, site. Um, for those of you who are part of the tour, uh, one of the things that when we were discussing the project with Chandadaswatta's staff is that I realized uh, what little people know of our political architecture uh, and our politics, uh, leave aside the constitution. Uh, and one of the, you know, some of the most fulfilling, I suppose, for me as well, because I like to talk about politics, but I think rather educational for them as well, and those discussions were very nice was uh, we, how, what we talked about, the political architecture and basic politics in this country, uh, and they hadn't heard about Mantri. Uh, so I think uh, uh, that itself is an indication about the uh, levels of awareness around uh, the politics of our country, and I think the media does have to uh, uh, accept a fair share of the blame in that sense in not educating uh, the consumers as much as they can and should around some of the issues we are going to talk about today. So Asoka is the brain is, is the architect of, of Mantri.lk, um, amongst many other things, of course, but I suppose that's the, that's the one thing that I would like to associate him with. All of them are very busy uh, and have been very, very kind, actually, at accepting this invitation. So I, as, a, as, as, a, as, a, as a curator, I, I can't thank you enough. And with that, Asoka, if you will, lead the panel. Uh, just to say that in terms of basic procedure, all of the panels are recorded. They will be up uploaded as a podcast subsequently. Uh, and if you do have a question during question and answer time, please wait until you have a mic, simply because we want to record your voice uh, in the podcast. Thank you very much, and Asoka, please. Anyway, uh, firstly, uh, thank you all uh, very much for giving of your time on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I know that uh, uh, there are many things which can be done on a Sunday afternoon, uh, most involving uh, a nap. Um, but um, anyway, and I'd also like to thank Sanjana for inviting me to um, uh, be involved in this. Uh, clearly, uh, I was even mentioning to Sanjana just before, uh, having um, uh, portraying our constitution and our constitutional development in this manner, uh, it really um, it taps into people's curiosity. And really, in tapping into people's curiosity, do people come along, start questioning things, which is, um, which is exactly what, uh, what needs to happen. Um, the way that we will, um, well, firstly, Thank you to our three panelists as well for giving up their time. Uh, I will introduce them shortly, but just to give you a little bit of um, background as to how we will run this. Um, <coughs> we won't, uh, I, I won't go on for too long now. Uh, and really, uh, this question which is being, uh, well, this topic, framing discourse, media, power, and democracy. What is quite interesting is that each of the panelists in their brief outlines, which were shared before, we, it was clear that we were approaching it from viewing, these, uh, viewing this topic from different angles. So 
I won't go on too long. I'll let the panelists maybe speak for five to ten minutes on how they view this topic and the issues which are sort of uh, within it. So we have elements of how the mainstream media functions, uh, edit issues of editorial independence uh, will be touched on. But furthermore, we're also going to be looking at how the press is evolving. Is social media, uh, is the new media actually having a a large impact on the way the traditional press is working. Uh, how does, <coughs> pardon me, how does, how does one go about encouraging journalists in this new, new period now? I mean, lots of these issues will be touched on um, in our moderated session, which will be to follow. And really, our moderated session is going to just be a conversation amongst us. So hopefully, it will be somewhat interesting, and, uh, and then we, it will be followed by a Q&A. &Q um, I will very, very briefly, in a nutshell, introduce our panelists, and I'll start from, from, from afar. But uh, uh, we have Mr. Lakshman Gunasekar, who is the founder president of the South Asia Free Media Association Sri Lanka branch, uh, but is best known now as the uh, editor of the Sunday Observer. But in addition to his work at the Sunday Observer, he has vast experience in both the state and the private, in private media. Then next to him we have uh, Mr. La Mr. Mr. Nalaka Gunawadana, who is um, uh, involved in many, many things, uh, but uh, is uh, um, a science writer, <coughs> amongst which he is a science writer and a journalist, and uh, he presently writes a column in the Rave every week. Uh, but Nalaki is best known for his uh, ability to synthesize difficult ideas and uh, write about them in a basic uh, way, making them accessible. And he's specifically known for his analytical writing on ICT in uh, Asia. Uh, and here and right next to me is uh, Mr. Amanta Pereira, uh, who um, is a journalist and a correspondent for the Time magazine, uh, The Guardian, uh, Al Jazeera, USA, and Reuters. He has been a Oshberg Fellow um, at the Graduate School of Journalism <coughs> a, um, at Columbia University. And um, some of Amantha's areas of expertise include uh, working in conflict and post-conflict situations, as well as at, at times of extreme hu um, humanitarian stress. Um, Amantha, uh, whilst he hasn't uh, mentioned this to me, I've also uh, realized is also a co-winner co of the Prince Albert United Nations Global Prize for Climate Change. So um, it's, a, it's a real uh, pleasure to have uh, all, all three of these panelists here. And maybe um, just as we'll start off with each panelist speaking for five to ten minutes on the topic, uh, and maybe I could uh, invite uh, Mr. Lakshman Gunasekara to get us kick-started. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> the subject given to me has uh, three words, power, uh, sorry, uh, media, power, and democracy. Um, so let me reflect on the three, the three words themselves. Um, <coughs> uh, very simply put, power is a uh, an dimension of a relationship between two or more entities. It could be human, but it need not be human. Uh, and the dimension, 
the dimension uh, is a uh, is the ability of one entity in its relationship with the other entity to compel that other entity that is in relationship between a and b if a if a has power it means a has the ability to compel b to do something not necessarily something that b wants to do that for me is a very basic understanding of power uh, and i will then try to describe my understanding of democracy uh, it's the predominant form of the of polities in the world today variations of it there are some exceptions uh, china for example personally i'm not very clear how to describe china i think it is within the ambit of a social democracy but not the conventional more predominant form of western style competitive uh, uh, party based democracy um, and if you look at the democracy as we have it today in sri, in sri lanka it is very much steeped now in the tradition of political party competition uh, this uh, competitive dimension uh, and with focal point being certain kinds of political organizations uh, which are engines of power in themselves uh, uh, encourages a more uh, kind of contested decision making process rather than a collaborative and uh, Uh, consensual decision making process so that those are some of the my understandings of democracy as it's practiced today um the mass the media and the media i'm talking about today right now is the news media mass media includes many other kinds of uh, communications media cinema is a very good another example and entertainment television is another example but i'm going to talk to you specifically about news media uh, because of more its direct bearing on power and power dynamics in society it's not that entertainment has doesn't have a bearing on power of course it does but the news media has a more direct bearing on power and politics then the one of the important dimensions of the news media as an industry is that it is market based and it is also therefore competitive uh, <clears throat> as an editor myself i am very much engaged in continuous competition with my uh, rival newspapers uh, in the market in fact i am tasked to try and overtake a uh, traditional rival in the english news media newspaper industry here uh, i don't know how much i'll succeed it's an uphill task but nevertheless this competition competition dimension is again very powerful very strong uh the market dictates what news is in terms of values news values are dictated by the market how because news uh, news organs news media organs whether they are radio or tv or certain kinds of structured internet news media as well as the news the traditional newspapers uh they focus on markets there is segmented markets uh, niche markets but the, i prefer the word segmented because niche implies a very small element in a market uh, and uh, uh we we compete to capture 
different types of audiences. It's what you call audience capture. Uh, and of course, to be more, if you want to elaborate, then the advertising industry comes in in terms of the competition for advertisements. Uh, the m most important thing, however, is that in this, uh, when the news media d dictates or nurtures uh, what is to be valued as news, that has an influence then on how a society and a community looks at what is happening in society, and then therefore it has a dimension of how it looks at uh, politics and how it, politics happen. And when the news media audiences are segmented in language, for example, then we have how communities, ethnic communities, value news and look at what is politics in terms of their understanding of what is uh, political news. So therefore, the decision-making of different segments of society is quite significantly influenced in the way they make political choices by the news media and the Center for Policy Alternatives at the, just before the last uh, parliamentary election in its survey found that 81% of the, the, the surveyed audience thought, felt that TV news uh, influenced their political choices in, in the parliament, 81%. So uh, this outline in terms of structure, dynamics, should indicate to you also the role of the power that the news media has. Now, in the 19th century Europe, they used an old feudal term to describe the news media as the fourth estate. That's a feudal term. It doesn't apply really in terms here today. But today also, the news media is a very powerful instrument uh, in terms of the politics. And who compels whom to uh, do things? I think I spoke enough. Ten minutes, thanks. Is that... Okay. Um, anyway, we can we can uh, really explore things a little further with Lakshman in a f uh, in a few minutes when we ha start our moderated session. But uh, maybe I can uh, sort of uh, move on to uh, Nalaka, and I know that uh, Nalaka has sort of uh, uh, thought through things about how sort of the media and how it can be involved in securing democracy. Maybe you could sh share some of your thoughts, Nalaka. Thanks, Asoka. Uh, the question that Sanjana, Sanjana asked us to reflect on was what is the role of media in securing democracy against its enemies within the media itself and beyond? Securing democracy against its enemies within the media itself and beyond. So that's a big question. Uh, within a few minutes, let me try and uh, present my take on this. I would argue that uh, we are in the midst of multiple overlapping deficits right now at this point in our uh, history. The democracy deficit is the first one and the better known one, uh, particularly in the past decade, which is now recognized and hopefully being addressed. Uh, but we still have a long way to go in bridging that deficit. The second one is something I've been writing on and trying to draw more attention to, which is the public trust deficit. The erosion of public trust in politicians, political and public institutions. This is not as widely recognized, uh, but as just as pervasive in this country. The third one is more relevant to our discussion today, which is what I call the media deficit probably the least recognized of the deficits uh, 
This has nothing to do with the media's outreach or circulation or numbers. Rather, it concerns how our established or mainstream media falls short in performing the responsibilities that we typically expect of it. Watchdog and the providing a public platform and what is uh, sometimes summed up as the responsibility to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Now, how much of our mainstream media is doing that? Not much. And thereby, it has given rise to uh, what I call a media deficit. Now, in this context, can new media, which is what I've been watching and chronicling and playing a part in for several years, can new media help narrow this media deficit? Can citizens leveraging the web and mobile devices and social media platforms uh, begin to fill, at least in part, this media deficit? My answer is both yes and no. Let me explain. Yes, new media opportunities can be seized and must be seized and are being seized by our citizens increasingly uh, for a variety of public interest purposes. Political participation, Mantri.lk is a good example. Advocacy and activism, the, the work that CPA does is increasingly not only in the physical world, but also in, um, uh, in the new media domains to promote transparency and accountability in uh, public institutions, to, for peace building and reconciliation, monitoring and critiquing corporate conduct. In these and other purposes, new media is being leveraged by ordinary citizens. All these trends are set to grow in the years to come. Right now, one in four, one in four Sri Lankans regularly uses the internet, and with even that limited number, we are beginning to see and feel the impacts. Why do I then say no? Because it cannot replace the mainstream media. For now, the counter-media efforts are not sufficient to bridge the media deficit or any of the other deficits I listed. The mainstream media actually have far more outreach and resources than the civic media, than individuals, the unpaid or self-funded individuals have or might ever have. Also, the rise of citizen-driven uh, new media does not and should not abdicate the mainstream of its social responsibilities. This is why uh, we need media sector reform, something that I have got involved in since January 8 in uh, our context. We definitely need media sector reforms to make the mainstream and established media more purposeful and more responsible and more efficient and also to modernize it while at it. So the debate is no longer about who's better, whether it is mainstream media or the civic media or citizen journalists. I think that is an obsolete debate. We need both. So let us accept and celebrate our increasingly hybrid media reality. Hybrid seems to be 
a term that is current. So we are in hybrid media times. Our narratives, our chronicling, and our expressions are very much now in hybrid mode. So let us, let us celebrate that. Let us see how we can enrich and improve both. And what, uh, in this regard, what matters is the acts of journalism, whether they are random acts of journalism or deliberate act of journalism, let us focus on the acts of journalism. Getting away from the institutional and formal structures that have until recently defined media. Uh, let me end with my own example. Every day, now, I have many and varied conversations with my almost 5,000 followers on Twitter. Several times a day. During this month alone, for example, I have had conversations on a range of current important topics. Examples, uh, the rational demarcation of ministry responsibilities uh, in our XXL cabinet that has been formed this month. The implications of that extra-large cabinet for, for the rest of us, society and economy. Questionable role of our Attorney General when it comes to prosecuting uh, certain wrongdoers. Uh, report on Sri Lanka at the UN Human Rights Council and implications of it. Is death panel to the answer to rising waves of violent crime? How to hold corporates like Coca-Cola Sri Lanka responsible for their conduct when they pollute public water bodies? Or what, uh, how to cope with hate speech that is driven either by ethnic or religious factors? This, among various other topics, we have had discussions and conversations. Yes, many of these conversations are fleeting and incomplete. But then so are the conversations in mainstream media. That is why they say there are no full stops in journalism, only commas. So I just wonder, although it sounds a little self-serving, how many newspaper editors can claim to be having this many conversations with a subsection or subset of society as I'm currently having using Twitter and increasingly consuming a lot of my time. So uh, there you are. There is, there is uh, hope for bridging the media deficit, Asoka. But I think what we need is uh, imagination and commitment. So I'll, I'll end there. Thanks, Nalika. That, uh, uh, that gives us a lot of material for our discussion in a few minutes. Uh, uh, Amanta, if I could uh, ask you to share your thoughts. And Thanks, Asuka. Okay. Uh, I'll try to speak as, some, as a journalist who has worked in Sri Lanka, in, in local newspapers, in national newspapers, as well as somebody who has now had experience overseas. Uh, when Sanchana invited me to speak here, one of the recurring, uh, you know, ideas in our conversations was uh, what happened in January and to a lesser extent what happened last month. And then the word watershed kept coming up. And related to what Nalaka just spoke about is are the events of January and August, would they be a watershed in changing 
the media, the way media works in this country? The simple answer is yes. But I, I mean, I, when I came here, I, had a, I was chatting with Nalak, and one of the things that I told him was that from the time I began my career as a journalist, one of the recurring discussions has been how do we improve journalism? How do we improve Sri Lankan journalism? Now, how do we improve journalism as a whole? And this discussion has been going on for the 15 long years I've been a journalist here and in other parts of the world as well. But getting back to the question of will the events in the last eight months help change the media, journalism in this country uh, for the better? They could. But I will just stick to two things. One is that I always see the bulk of reporting here and sometimes overseas as well as reported speech, as just repeated speech. And why do I say that? Is that most of the time our reporting is we keep repeating something somebody tells us. Now that's fine, that needs to happen because there are newsmakers, there are event makers and we need to report that. But when 90% of our reporting is that, what we end up with is that we kind of end up in an echo chamber and it's continuous reverberations of the same thing over and over and over again. And there is no, uh, well, for the need of a better word, there is, there's no proactive journalism happening sufficiently. Where journalists seek out stories and then seek out sources and then build stories. And if you have that, then you balance these two things of reporting what newsmakers create and also journalists searching stories out. Now, for example, uh, just this past few days, everything has been dominated by Geneva. What's happening in Geneva? What's happening in Geneva? So everything is what is happening in Geneva. And very little has been, uh, what is it going to do here? How are the people who uh, are going to be impacted by this? What are they thinking? What is going to happen here? Now to do that, you really need to go out and search out those stories. And my opinion is that is not happening enough. And because of that, we have an imbalanced reporting culture. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is the whole aspect of social media. Now, I use social media as another reporting platform. I do not use it as a citizen journalist. I do not use it as a citizen. I use it as a journalist. And I apply the same parameters that I would apply for when I'm writing for any of the organizations that I work for, which include attribution, sourcing, all that. Uh, social media has become a kind of like a double-edged sword. There are a lot of opportunities that it gives us as journalists, not only in putting out what we gather, but also uh, uh, in terms of gaining sources. I mean, you can, I can, I, 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 I didn't go out anywhere out of my office when I was reporting on what was happening in Geneva. But then when the UN Human Rights uh, Commissioner was holding the press conference, I knew exactly what was happening outside 
the hall where some of the families of the missing and others who had gone from Sri Lanka were waiting because it was coming out of social media and you could directly get in touch with them. Uh, so it offers a lot of opportunities. But I see loose ends in the way journalists use social media. And one of the things that I see is that some things that we wouldn't even not only wouldn't we put it on newspaper, we wouldn't even mention it to our editor, we would just put it on social media. And I saw a lot of this during the racial riots that happened in Aludgama, where people were just putting out stuff that you heard from somebody, he said this, she said this, you just put it out on social media. I think that, that shouldn't happen. As journalists, you should, we should apply the same parameters that we apply uh, when we are reporting and we are producing our sororities to social media as well. And it's, it's, it's not, it's, even though it appears as if it's just a conversation that we are having in the tea room of our newspapers, it's not. It's a conversation that we are having, we are having with the entire world. And to use, uh, taking from what Nalaka said, if we want to use social media uh, as an effective reporting tool, as an effective engagement tool with our audience. I think we need to be much more professional in the manner that we use social media, how we engage. For example, uh, I would never put, where well, I'm going with my family or what I do in my personal capacity on my social media because uh, my social media platforms are, I'm a reporter, this is what I do, and this is what I'm reporting. But then I see, countless journalists who would just put out a news kind of like uh, an, uh, just a news item and then the next thing would be I'm having coffee and I don't think that should happen. Sure. Thank you all. Um, I guess uh, building on one of the first ideas that you were talking about, Lakshman, this uh, power and democracy and then touching on this post-January 2015, is it a game changer or not? I mean, now, as you all have, some of you all have touched on and directly said that January 2015 is a game changer, is a watershed. But actually, as a member of the public, um, how, can, uh, how can a member of the public ever feel that uh, the media is actually um, disconnected from uh, uh, sort of political will in a way in which it was connected, let's say, before January 2015? Um, I mean, is, is, is there a way in which this watershed can actually be observed? Or is it a case that, uh, let's say, as an editor or as journalists, do you just say, oh, right, well, it's... Uh, 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 now we're free to say what we like, and uh, if political will changes tomorrow, then it all changes again. I mean, is there, is there any way that these sorts of things can be benchmarked in a way whereby, you know, we can actually see how, t how this is tangible? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that, Lakshman? Yeah, well, <clears throat> it has uh, certainly directly, uh, January uh, 8th, directly uh, affected my professional standing uh, and my career. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, in actually more ways than one. Firstly, the, had the opened up space enabled me to re-engage with the me mainstream news industry from which I had been isolated and marginalized 
like several other uh, mid-career and senior journalists. Um, that's one thing. But I uh, also have entered or re-entered the state media, uh, and I'm engaged in uh, trying to internally refashion uh, uh, the, the editorial, the newsroom in the state media, uh, and uh, it's having nearly nine years ago also uh, been in the state media, and before that, of course, I was I grew up in the private sector media, so uh, I could make comparisons. And uh, the situation today is far more, infinitely more challenging than it was when I entered Lake House in 1994. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, that watershed dimension. Uh, it's, it's not just me, it's the entire newspaper is, is transformed, physically transformed. I would invite you to uh, look at the copy of the Sunday Observer today and compare it with uh, a year, uh, six months ago or nine months ago, and I hope you see some <laughs> difference, if not in content, at least in form. Uh, so uh, um, the uh, demoralization of state media news personnel, for example, there is a stark... Uh, uh, change taking place now, how, how much many of those uh, demoralized journalists can actually recover and revive is also an interesting challenge. Uh, so these are some of the things we are looking at uh, right now. I, I won't talk too much. Yeah. But I mean, but, but in that regard, I mean, and given the way that you're touching on the sort of uh, the rot within state media which is uh, which really and the fact that state uh, state media journalists and others have to be really sort of uh, motivated again um, is is do you think it's important that these particular media houses um, i mean state media houses and things is it important that they actually publicly acknowledge the restrictions that they've had in the past or or is it just a case that you know uh, the week after the election, they just start uh, publishing stories in a different way or covering things in a different way? Or is, should there be actually some public acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, there were these sorts of restrictions in the past and this is now a break from the past? Is, is that important or is it just a case of just producing the next newspaper next week and uh, taking a new line? That, that's that's uh, interesting and, and it also reflects the internal structures of power, right? Uh, I don't know how, much, how long we can go on in a post-mortem of, of the state media, but uh, you see, now, I am, I am actually a political appointee, right? I am I'm a senior news manager, so I am appointed by the top management, which in this case is political, right? Uh, uh, technically speaking, it's the public trustee, right, uh, who appoints the board, but it's just a formality. The, the government appoints the board, and then the board appoints the news managers. But the staff we have largely comprise of people who are, have been there for different administrations, right through, right? So for them, this is yet another new political management, right? Uh, it's, it's a harsh reality. I mean, they, they, they haven't told me, but I can imagine how they will tell me, look, you may come and say, feel free to criticize the government today, but uh, two years from now, maybe the government changes and maybe you are no longer there, right? And uh, I'm, a senior, you know, I'm a senior journalist who can access other avenues of uh, media income, etc. So, uh, so then they, will, they could say, although they have not told it me directly, I have the imagination to think it out. Uh, they could say, if I report something against a particular minister today, he will keep that in mind. And when he comes back next to power, he could take revenge on us. So these are harsh realities. 
right? That's why this concept of watershed is, in a sense, yes, it's there, but also there are also continuities. And if I may also uh, just uh, uh, respond to uh, Amanta's somewhat bleak picture about the, the news media industry itself. I am, as a teacher in journalism, I'm very much at that same point, starting point, but just to add on a dimension, don't misunderstand me, Amanta, I just want to add on a dimension, that is that, that because of the market, the private sector media especially is packaging and creating news, right, to entertain audiences. Politics also is entertainment, right, to capture audiences. And I find it fascinating and inspiring the way in the Sinhala TV channels, how their political talk shows. Sometimes it is boring, but also at the same time they do endeavor to create packages, on, in, uh, a fresh package in each, uh, each episode. Right? So, for example, at the height of the election contest, uh, there was a panel of five women politicians, including Rosa Serenayaka. And the interviewers, the panel were male and female journalists. And I noted the way, almost uh, probably very unselfconsciously, for none of them I don't think are feminists, but the way they package and ask questions, uh, which are critical aspects of the feminist struggle, the women's struggle because they wanted to get good answers and entertain the audiences. So now this, for me, I'm not a fan of the market actually, but here you can see how the market dynamic does enable and empower the media to be creative. Thanks. Can I, uh, can I jump in here, Asoka? If our aspiration is uh, to use media or see media securing democracy, I'm not sure whether this business of the state or the government in office publishing newspapers, running radio and TV channels, and publishing websites, whether this is, this is really necessary in this day and age. Now, this is a legacy of uh, 20th century media structures uh, and, and certain policies, such as uh, nationalizing Lake House in the early 1970s. Now, we, I think, have come to the end of that run, or at least we should, we should see it as such. Just like in the constitution of the 1978 constitution, it has become so untenable uh, for us to meaningfully, realistically continue with it any further. I think this notion of state media, uh, currently practiced in Sri Lanka, needs to be revisited, questioned, and reconfigured. Uh, that I say with a uh, lot of respect for Amanta, uh, sorry, uh, Lakshman and, and other senior colleagues of mine, my friends of mine who are working in some of these state media institutions. Even they will agree, I hope, that this notion of state media needs to be then turned into true public service media. Uh, and once or twice removed from all politics and also ideally once removed from the market. So that's a huge challenge that media reforms now today face. But I think, I personally don't think the state should be publishing newspapers uh, or running uh, broadcast stations any more than the state should be running guest houses and hotels and factories as 1970s the state used to do. Now, those have been shed, but not the state media. Why? Yeah. Thanks for that, Nalak. And maybe if anyone in the audience uh, has a question they can, on, on this particular issue, they can bring that up uh, during the Q&A. But um, just uh, moving things forward a little bit, um, 
I mean, one thing, uh, a term that you used, Nalaku, was uh, this idea of the media as a watchdog. And maybe I can point this question at Amanta. I mean, um, can we actually expect the media in its current guise to act as the watchdog of uh, democracy? And in that light, I mean, could you also maybe, because you have had experience uh, in the local press and in the international press, um, the ways in which, let's say, editors incentivize their journalists to do um, uh, to work. Are there are, are there other lessons that that we can learn based on your experience in both areas? And similarly, um, in your opinions, uh, and this is to all of you all, I mean. Are, those, are the ways in which editors incentivize uh, journalists in the different languages, does it work in a very different way? And uh, is there something, is there an important insight that our audience should know about that? Can it work? Yeah, it could. But for that, I think there are a list of changes that need to happen. And the changes need to happen at industry level, at institutional level, at the level of the community of journalists, and also as individual journalists. Uh, I mean, I, I quite rightly agree with uh, Lakshman when he said that there are really good political programs that take place. But that is also a reflection of the way our media works. It's too tuned in to politics. And it always takes a high on politics. When there are elections, every, you know, it's everybody's on high. But then why can't we maintain that momentum, maybe not that really high momentum, but that kind of uh, uh, dedication, that kind of uh, dedication of resources and journalists during normal times. Aren't there really important stories that affect our news readers? Let's forget about you know, our social conscious, our responsibilities to society. Stories that are important to our readers, our audience, why don't we put that kind of effort to uh, the, the, those kind of stories? That is where I keep coming back to this whole idea of the notion of repeated speech. It's not only here, it's, uh, it's happening everywhere in the world. And what has happened here is that the news arc is being determined by people who are outside the news-making room. And we take it and we run with it, thinking, oh, we are the ones who are making news. No, we are not. Somebody else makes the news. Fine, let them make the news. But then we also can do that. For example, there is very little in-depth reporting happening on everything, that, uh, like, you know, on health, on social issues. Forget all that. There isn't in-depth reporting happening in sports in Sri Lanka. We are a cricket-loving, mad country. Where is the really good sports reporting that is happening here? So I think we need to look at the industry. We need to look at uh, how do we invest in ourselves. Now, I am an out-and-out -out freelancer. If my stories don't get published, I don't get paid. And in a way, it's like uh, if I have to give what the market wants, but then there, also, you, have, you can you know, present the stories that you are think as important in a way that people will think, my God, this story is a really important story, that people, will, uh, people would love to read it. And, I, and finally, I would like to like, kind of remind us that let's go back to basics. When I went to journalism school, I had a lecturer who kept on like, saying, 
whenever you do something whenever you write produce take a picture have an imaginary reader in your mind and if that person doesn't want to read your story if that person doesn't want to look at your story trust me nobody would and in my case it's my mother she's she's not a you know uh, a university professor or anybody she was a typical sri lankan housewife intelligent enough to run a household with uh, three men my me my brother and my father and my father was also a journalist so uh, so i always have this thing thinking if my mother doesn't want to read this nobody will and what it does is that when i write i write in a way that i can relate to uh, my audience and it can be as simple as writing a quote um based on what you're saying amanta this uh, i mean i guess you're you're distinguishing this idea of reporting and uh, being a thought leader um and i guess maybe i can um, ask uh, nalika this i mean given uh, that you write a column in the ravia nalika i mean do you now for instance let's say when we look at the singhala press generally those who are looking at the singhala those who are trying to look at the singular press analytically would say that let's say the divina is uh, um, gives the greatest voice to maybe the nation the nationalist voice uh, when you look at a um, sort of an alternative press paper like the janarala it's uh, it 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 uh, it, uh, it looks at uh, the, um, what the fsp says and um, and the politics of the fsp but i mean in general though do you feel that um, Uh, the press is it important that the press and each uh, each paper each media house has an is ideologically underpinned is that an, is the, is that important or is that something which uh, um, and and if so is that something which has to be uh, looked at um, i i i i may not be framing my question very well but this idea of the need for uh, an ideological underpinning for each media house is that an important thing in your opinion no uh, i would argue that it it's not so important as an overarching commitment to the public interest yes i i can appreciate the diversity of perspectives uh in the good old days we had uh, even uh, political party newspapers and i think they still are but in a very small way but if you recall the atta uh in the 1970s and 80s uh, the communist party's newspaper no doubt but it also performed uh, a bigger role than just the communist ideology uh, but i don't think that kind of very strict ideology is is being uh, expressed through media houses or particular media outlets anymore but what i find generally in the singular language media newspapers in particular is there is by a large uh, an insular mentality that they define themselves as detached from and and separate from and sometimes aloof of the the wider realities of multiculturalism and complex society so they they go for this simplistic narrative and then try to also often uh come up with with theories and notions whereby they i think mislead the reader often on what are very complex social and economic and political issues 
the Sinhala media often tries to give uh, a spin that is superficial. That is, that is one observation. There are honorable exceptions to this, and I hope those exceptions will, will survive and increase. Now, the, the other question I want to come back to your earlier uh, general question to all of us. I want to ask whether there is enough democracy within established media organizations. The, the inside of it, the inner works, because all this while we've been talking about the content that we put out and how we put out. Uh, but before it gets to the point of publication or broadcast, there is a certain, certain process that happens. And again, there are issues, structural issues, power issues. A lot of our media is, is run in a semi-feudal manner, I would argue. And that affects the level of uh, professionalism, the level of free expression, and the nuance and the quality of what comes out in the front end. So uh, we, we therefore are poorer because just like our political parties don't have inner democracy, a lot of our mainstream media organizations also don't have don't have in a democracy in many, many places. For example, a staff reporter or writer cannot openly, publicly disagree with the chief editor. Now, the Rave is one exception where Victor Ivan as founder and chief editor has not only allowed but encouraged and uh, promoted contesting points of view. But such dissent is, is very often simply not possible in uh, other newspapers and other media. So we, I think, also need to turn the light on the media industry itself and see where a little more democratic, pluralistic character can be promoted in the industry. Yeah, <clears throat> well, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I did refer to the inner power structure of Lake House. Um, I, I agree that I think Rave is probably the only newspaper uh, or media organ other than the internet media where there is that kind of, uh, you know, uh, collective sort of uh, conversation going on. That doesn't mean that there is a con full sort of consensus, but as a coll collective conversation uh, in terms of between the reporters and the managers and the gatekeepers. Now, I did bit use the word gatekeeper because... Uh, for me, actually, uh, ideological, ideological underpinnings are there, are constant, are always there. That's why even in professional terms, the term gatekeeper comes in, right? Uh, because, uh, you see, one way and the dominant way which uh, ideology functions is the market itself, right? And I, I, in my journalism trainings, an example I give is that for... Uh, you see, the newspaper industry, for example, or even the TV industry, not so much, but the newspaper industry is heavily urban-based, right? Uh, TV is a little bit more widespread, but the newspaper is heavily urban-based for obvious, certain physical reasons. Uh, so, which means that uh, a farmer has to, uh, in, in Hambantota or Kahatagas Digilia, has to climb onto a water tank and threaten to jump off it or even commit suicide, in India they commit suicide, to highlight the problems of agriculture and the rural, rural, poor rural communities. Till then, uh, the TV cameras won't go there, or the newspapers won't bother to write. It's not news. 
so now there there the market itself structures you know uh, uh, social power bases and social attitudes and social priorities governmental priorities you know development uh, set uh, 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 pathways, all that. So, uh, into that degree, ideology does is a constant, not necessarily a conscious one, but it is there. Thanks. This um, just to change things slightly, I want to um, uh, give an example of an experience I had recently, and um, I'd like to know um, uh, what your thoughts may be. Um, now, I run Man3.lk, so um, in three years of Parliament. We have 28,000 individual records of what every single parliamentarian has said on every single issue. Now, the one thing that I have, um, there are former journalists who work with me, and the one thing which uh, I've really been trying to, we've been trying to encourage, is the idea that you start using what parliamentarians have said in the past when you're interviewing them about something today. So, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to interview them about higher education today. Instead of just letting them, instead of reporting on what their their opinions are, holding them to account based on what they have said maybe two years ago, and that is something which is a service which Mantri.lk will give a, a journalist for nothing, for free. But now the now the interesting thing that that we've started to realize is that it seems as though. When we mention this to a journalist, we'd like to think that this is revolutionary, but actually, this is actually a little bit more work. I mean, um, this actually requires someone to give a call and request, and for us to email over four PDFs, and we say, "Look at page 27. Look at page 53. This is what uh, um, MPX has said about this particular issue." This act is is our people who are managing journalists. Are they really pushing them to uh, um, push those boundaries, try new innovative ways of doing things, or is it a case that there is this understanding that, ah, uh, well, journalists aren't very well paid, so maybe what we expect of them is also subpar as well? I, I mean, is, is that is 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 that somehow sort of inbuilt in the system, and can that be challenged? Uh, Uh, maybe as a, as an editor of a paper, Lakshman, I could ask you. <laughs> you know, well, that's my constant challenge, right? Uh, I mean, having uh, run Newsdesk in the private sector as well, there's a stark contrast. But even in the private sector, and that's why I, that's why I start off in the same point as uh, Amanta about the mediocrity. You know, uh, the, even at even in private sector newspapers, there are some journalists who are competitive. And who focus and have some in-depth and some structured approach, but most journalists, uh, uh, they are just, uh, they are, I mean, they are, they are white-collar industry animals, right? Uh, it's not fair for me to impose my uh, idealistic sort of goals and uh, you know high trajectories, uh, given, of course, also my own social background and all that. It's not fair for me to. Standardize and say all journalists should function in that same way. No, and that's why uh, we work with a, a, a varied, a variation in terms of capacities and uh, capabilities and talents uh, and focuses. In the private sector, is one kind. In the state sector, it's even more constrained and more mediocre, appallingly so. I'm sorry to say, right? Uh, but uh, but those are challenges, and sometimes we we take it on to work. Right? In some cases, 
not only in the private sector, but even in the, uh, not only in the state sector, but even in the private sector, when I assign a journalist to go and do something, sometimes I have ended up not only suggesting the sources, but uh, the questions, and if not, then these questions, and even the telephone numbers, <laughs> you know? So that just gives you an idea of the variation in capacities. I mean, I, I just want to point out one thing. We always keep saying that, that in Sri Lanka, journalism is cheap. Probably it is. I mean, I, I keep telling a lot of these discussions that I have in public. There's one of the things is that you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, right? But let us not forget that there are really good journalists in Sri Lanka. Maybe little, maybe it's the minority, but you really have some really good journalists in this country. I mean, I don't want to mention names, but uh, one of the best news reporters, probably in Asia, uh, is in this country. One of the best news photographers, whose photography is art, uh, is not here, but is Sri Lankan based. So there are really good journalists. Now what we need to figure out is that if we can produce people of that caliber, why can't we have that reflection in the general media that comes out in this country. Now, as I see it, when I worked in uh, local newspapers, and my experience in Sri Lankan newspapers is very limited. I only worked in one newspaper uh, under Lasantha Vikramatunga. And, uh, and I think there is a culture in newspapers, and most certainly it was at the Sunday Leader, where because due to financial constraints, due to space issues and other issues, sometimes you just keep running cheap stuff. You just keep, I mean, there was a time when people were writing stories about environmental issues and the sources were anonymous. And you were like, what? I mean, you're talking about a river going dry and the guy doesn't want to put his name? What, what has happened here is that uh, we have a culture where people are just addicted to the telephone. And that's partly because newspapers and news organizations don't want to invest in shoe leather journalism. To send somebody to that place will require sending a, uh, a vehicle, petrol, time consuming. What the editor would think is, okay, if I keep this journalist in my office, he or she will take a phone call, write that story, then write another story, then probably write another story from a news release, and I also save on uh, petrol. So I think we keep coming back to this question of how do we improve journalism. And people who have invested in their careers in Sri Lanka have gone far in journalism. And I think they have done it on their own initiative, and they've gone overseas, they've got training, and they're working in this country as well. But how do we have that kind of professional standards reflected in our newspapers, our TV stations. That's the question that we need to answer. Just to add, uh, there is a bit of pressure building from the media consumers or the, the group that was once known as a media audience, now more and more empowered to speak their mind. Newspapers and other media are being looked at critically for their content, for their accuracy, for their balance uh, in social media. There are groups or individuals who then spot these discrepancies and, and they, 
they highlight it. There is a Facebook group, for example, that I have uh, joined a few months ago, uh, which looks at media goof-ups, basically uh, mixing up uh, things that they should not be mixing up or making blunders they certainly are not expected to, uh, to make. So there is that happening. The, the once passive audience readership is not so passive anymore. Now, whether our editors, managers, proprietors in the mainstream are, are aware of this, responsive to this, I'm not too sure. There is a certain aloofness and an arrogance still about what is said in social media, except perhaps sometimes to uh, wholesale use blog posts and fill their, uh, fill their pages or to lift uh, Twitter conversations and fill newspaper pages, there isn't really that engagement, uh, that, that going back and forth between social media practitioners and the mainstream, mainstream media practitioners and managers. But it's beginning to happen. So the media's professionalism is under greater scrutiny, I would say, because today, Readers, consumers have a way of expressing that once they have dissatisfaction. Sure. Actually, that, that ties in quite well because my, my final question before opening it out for the Q&A was really about whether um, social media actually drives innovation in, the tr in traditional media or does traditional media, me uh, do traditional media houses view it as something which runs in parallel? Um, maybe uh, Lakshman, you could maybe uh, touch on that a little, and then if Amanta and Nalak have any final thoughts. Yeah, most certainly it has uh, drive, uh, driven innovation in the print media, certainly. Uh, I think also in the uh, uh, TV media also. Is, is there a way in which maybe you could give an example of how that innovation has actually been driven in the print media? Yeah, well, uh, uh, one thing is, on one side, of course, in the long term, in my view, in the long term, I think uh, newspapers as hard as print media is on the way out. You know, I, and I think I'm a dinosaur in that sense. Uh, but that's still a long way away. In South Asia, print media is still growing. It's on the upward curve. Uh, it's a developing country. But uh, in terms of competing, uh, we have to innovate. We use, I still have not done it in an organized ma manner. I'm still so involved with the print product itself. But I am beginning to use the, our website to sell the hard print copy, right? Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what Daily Mirror does, right? Uh, that, that, and we learned it from the West right? and from, also from uh, India. Uh, even the, the physical form of the Sunday paper, I am arguing and uh, I'm trying to work at it, but it's not easy given the printing constraints and the cost of the paper and all that kind of thing and the, the kind of staff we have to produce it, uh, the graphics people. But uh, I'm looking at uh, large format uh, visuals, right? Because that's the only way print can compete with screens, right? Because uh, I, I, I travel by bus, not all the time, but I do it quite often sometimes. And I'm struck by the way young people get into the bus after work and take out their smartphones and start getting get onto Facebook. 
I'm reminded of uh, a past, like say, 50 years ago, where white-collar workers would get, get out of the bus or the train and take out their tabloid newspapers and read their tabloid papers, right? And then that went out of fashion, right? And we thought people are no longer accessing news. They are not. They're accessing Facebook, but there are ways to get them hooked onto news through Facebook. You see, so uh, it's a, it's a, uh, that's that's where place where print media is innovating, and in the form we are looking at large spread uh, uh, photogra- uh, photography, right? Art photography, which which we can compete, graphics, diagrams, right? That kind of large spread layout is what we are what we are going for. Thanks. Yeah, I agree with uh, Lakshman. I don't think in our part of the world print will will go extinct for quite a long while yet, but then there is this whole generation, and perhaps now a generation and a half, who are no longer habitually reading newspapers, uh, as we did when we were growing up and our parents and grandparents did. Now, this demographic group is is, uh, getting larger in numbers. They are getting more economically and politically influential. Uh, Anybody under 30 at the moment, I would say, and, and it keeps getting uh, larger. So sooner or later, they will, they will be the dominant uh, economic and political force. And then the traditional print broadcast media will find that they are running out of uh, sufficient influence, even if they might be sustained. Already the sustaining of media industries in this country is not so much on commercial viability but on other considerations. So, so the market is not the only consideration or the factor. Uh, influence peddling is quite a considerable factor uh, in why rich people start newspapers or media and, and keep it going. But that influence factor, even if, even if some, some base sales or uh, audience ratings are there, the influence will decline. And that I think the mainstream media should really be aware of. This is coming in within the next five to ten years. And if media fails or ceases to be a social force to reckon with, then you'll be you know, publishing or broadcasting to an increasingly shrinking number of people. And then uh, this whole notion of media as socially responsible and defenders of democracy will, will, uh, will be undermined. So I think we should, we should uh, adapt and innovate in the mainstream media from now onwards for what's going to happen. My opinion is that uh in, when it comes to social media, uh, our Sri Lankan newspapers, uh, for most part, really don't understand what social media really is about. I'll take an example. If you're going to put an incident that happened right now, and if you're going to put it as a story in tomorrow's newspaper, that doesn't work now. Because what's happening right now is going to go out on social media uh, immediately, and people will know. Now, the thing that newspapers and journalists need to understand is like, how do we use tomorrow's print edition and then the most immediate 24-7 Twitter feeds or Facebook or whatever uh, as two mediums but doing the same thing. I mean, you, you keep sending out the breaking stuff 
on Twitter or Facebook or uh, the, the immediate social media uh, platforms. But then what do you do for the next day? That is where the uh, problem, I think, lies now. Because journalists need to adapt themselves for that next day story. For example, when the Geneva report came out, if the next day story is about this is what the Geneva report contains, like that audience that Nalaka was talking about would definitely would have accessed that report, would have digested that report, and would have gone through the important path. So what is the next day story? What do, why do we need a journalist sitting in an office writing a news story? So that's what we need to look at. And uh, I think social media is helping journalists. Uh, for example, uh, about two or three years ago, uh, people were talking about that long-form journalism is dying out. And when I say long-form journalism, this is stories that run into 3,000 words, which you take a month to write and three months to report. And suddenly, there's an increase in long-form journalism on uh, internet-based platforms. But how do we do it? You incorporate other multimedia with the 3,000 word story. For example, there are uh, slideshows that go uh, in, within the body of the story. There are interviews where you have the excerpts of the interview in the story, but then the full re uh, recording is uh, available. So I think there are ways and means of doing that. It's just that journalists, professional journalists, need to figure out how do we do it. And find one example I, I, uh, is that even this Sunday, there are newspapers which are running full-page interviews with politicians, ministers. Now, who would have time on a Sunday to read a full-page interview? Nobody. But if it's an important minister, people would like to read the important things that they have said. You can kind of put that. You can write, do a story on that. Put the full interview on your website. So whoever is interested, you can go there and look at that. And if you have really good photographs, you can't have like, you know, five photographs in one page now. That's not done. I mean, you can't do it. But then you can have a slideshow on your web page. You can really do these things, but then you have to be innovative. You have to be a little bit thinking out of the box. But most importantly, you have to know your stuff really well. You can't be shoddy. Sure, thanks. All right, well, um, uh, we can open out to uh, questions now. Uh, um, uh, if anyone has a question, if they could uh, raise their hand and uh, maybe uh, just give their name uh, and their question. Uh, are, there, are there any questions in the, from the audience? Anything at all? Um, uh, yeah. If you could give your name as well. Uh, Ravi just, uh, just an observation. I think what we're talking about, if you try to look at the bigger picture, is you're trying to rebuild an institution. Right? And that's something that um, is not easy to do, and, and it's going to take a generation, perhaps. Right? Coming to summarize some of the points, I think, that was mentioned training of journalism, of journalists, is probably one of the factors that is going to improve the quality. Now, when it comes to other institutions of state, uh, the legislature, the judiciary, the civil service, 
constitution amendments can uh, provide, uh, can, uh, can give the independence that these uh, institutions require. But with uh, the media, I don't think the state should get involved in trying to reform it. Uh, but uh, there's a lack of, a, of uh, an innovation, uh, a dynamic. It's, it's, gone, it's, it's gone dead, right? Uh, training is, uh, is probably one way you can improve the standards. But uh, the question of how do you uh, uh, increase the dynamics of the thing, I don't know, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult uh, question to tackle. Uh, and which the state perhaps should not get involved with. But maybe uh, if you look at the complete privatization of the, of the state media, Lake House, uh, SLBC, Rupa Mahini, ITN, the whole lot, that might give the whole uh, media uh, uh, the injection and a sort of adrenaline that will force the uh, innovation and uh, bring in the thinking the ideas the uh, the people so so in that sense is is your question ravi um, whether the panelists uh, what their views are on the privatization of uh, the state media the, the, well i was just trying to uh, it's a tricky question but um, <laughs> perhaps sure. that's an idea to think about i don't know whether it's right or wrong sure. uh, it's sure. just something that yeah. came to me we, we'll explore that and uh, it's, sorry there's a question at the back there um, hi, um, I'm Bhuvanika Bandar. Um, so, uh, before I ask the question, I guess I have to apologize for flogging the same dead horse. But uh, my intention was also to engage the panel a bit more on uh, state media. Um, I, I know that Ravi suggested that maybe they should be privatized, and Nalak was of the opinion that um, the state should not at all be in the media business to begin with. Um, but um, assuming that it is a necessary evil of how we go about, um, you know, doing doing what we do in this country, um, uh, I mean, I just want to get an opinion from you guys. Now, every time there is political change, we always aspire for some kind of metamorphosis in how the state be state media goes about its business, but. Um, at the end of the day, every time uh, we get struck down very heavily with the understanding um, that, that all those aspirations were completely in vain. Um, this is a very crude question. Um, I just want to know um, what the panel's opinion on this is. I, I just want to know wh what you guys think has gone wrong with the state media and um, other than probably hard coding things into law that the state media be independent. Is there anything from a structural standpoint that we could look at probably to get things going, not from a non-legislative perspective, from a non-legislative aspect, things that we could do structurally to you know, bring the state media to a level where it could be a bit more palatable to uh, a greater audience of this country? Sure. Uh, is, yeah, are there any other questions? We could field them all together. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, regarding sort of uh, 
uh, what has what has gone wrong and if there is a sort of non-legislative solution. Maybe I'll ask uh, if Lakshman could uh, um, maybe give his thoughts on that. And yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think all three of us have uh, uh, thoughts on that, uh, <clears throat> and it's uh, very vital that the that the journalistic community also has thoughts on it in terms of an organized community and a profession. Uh, that itself would indicate how much I'm thinking about this. It is actually uh, the restructuring of the state media in, in a sense is a kind of mission in my life as an activist journalist. Uh, it's a slow thing, I can tell you that. Uh, uh, if you look at what went wrong with the state media, in a sense, the very conception of state media has something wrong in that, right? Uh, but, but we need to be careful how we, what we mean by state. Now, uh, for me, there is something called the public service. Publicly owned property and institutions are uh, devoted to certain kinds of public service. It could be hospitals or it could be transportation systems or many things. Uh, education, for example. That is because uh, the, the society itself is uneven and there are various sectors in society and various aspects of social life which may not get necessarily uh, prioritized or highlighted or even acknowledged if everything is left to the market and is based on individual consumer or group consumer needs and interests and desires. So when you look at it like that, uh, I think the example I gave you about, uh, uh, say, the poor farmer uh, who has to either commit suicide or threaten to commit suicide to get attention to this huge issue of agricultural uh, of, of, uh, problem in agriculture and rural poverty. Uh, the, uh, theoretically, the public sector media is one area where that can uh, be highlighted. Why is this? Because the, if you are dependent on the market, then you are dependent on urban consumers to sell your newspaper or even capture TV audience or radio audience. Right? So then the urban uh, consumer, news consumer, is not interested in, in the poor farmer. Right? Uh, not that much. Uh, certainly not to have that as a, as a major lead uh, news item uh, constantly. But given the degree of population involved in, in uh, rural poverty, it should be a major lead in uh, constantly. Not all the time, but uh, it should be one of the major leads. So now that's, that indicates to you what is it uh, in terms of structure, what is the value of having a publicly owned media. Now who runs the media, the publicly owned media, is the crux of the matter. That's the crux of the matter. And uh, today it is politicians and political parties who come to governmental power who decide uh, what goes on in the state media. Uh, I'm, I'm, I personally experience it every day, but uh, to a much lesser degree uh, today than, uh, than I, th I think it is in other, during other regimes. Uh, I have had, previously, I, I have had to walk, walk away from the state media because I couldn't handle that kind of control so much. So we are looking at a restructuring of publicly owned institutions. And therefore, and, the, and that new structure 
should be designed to cater to the function of that institution. So in terms of a newspaper or a radio, for example, the RKW Gunasekar Committee uh, has recommended very uh, effectively a kind of representational ownership from different sectors of society and different professions to be the managing board of that media institution. We're hoping, therefore, that that will capture a broad spectrum of social interests and socially important news. There are many models of publicly owned media. Le Monde is one. Uh, 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 Liberation, again, in France is another one. Uh, I think The Guardian is... Uh, Guardian is not publicly owned as such. It's a private... Uh, it's, it's a trust, right? So you get many, many things. But the objective of all this is that it is public service. Yeah, just to add, uh, Ravi, I don't think privatizing the state media would really give us... Uh, uh, a really lasting solution or even an improvement. True enough, uh, the private sector's entry into broadcasting has diversified what was until then a state monopoly, uh, but it isn't fully serving the public interest. There are, there are things that are hugely imperfect in the, in the private broadcasting, for example. So, uh, as Lakshman said, the Solution is both legal and structural reform. And the, the details have been discussed, deliberated, formulated, and been available for nearly 20 years because RKW Gunasekara report uh, came in the late uh, or 96 or 97. So we, for nearly 20 years, we've known what needs to be done. But what we've lacked is the political will. Political will in successive administrations, governments, has not been there. Uh, and there have been short periods, whereas uh, perhaps now, when the goodwill of people at the top enabled state media to function a little more freely than at other times. But we can't rely on this goodwill. Even of the same individuals, that can change. So we, that's why we need uh, legal autonomy for, for media institutions, for them to be truly public service media. The, the models, there are, there are various models, the NHK model of um, Japan, the BBC model in, um, in the UK, uh, and, and in both these countries, the viewers jointly crowdfinance part of the cost of these public broadcasters. In the UK, it's a high license fee of 150 pounds per year, if I remember correctly. And in Japan, it's around 70 US dollars equivalent per household. And whether you watch that channel or not, every household with a television set has to pay that annually. And that money is not enough, but it's a significant part of the public broadcaster's income. Now, is that kind of model viable here? And if you remember, until 1998, in our own modest way, we had a radio license and a television license. And the money collected went, in the case of radio license, entirely to SLBC. In the case of uh, television license, uh, it was split between Rupavahini and ITN. And that was discontinued in 1998 because the ostensibly because uh, they wanted to continue an archaic, discontinue an archaic system. But really, we suspect 
that gave every listener and, and viewer a stake in the public broadcasters or the state broadcasters, and they could sue if the state broadcasters were not serving that expectation of the license fee paying public. And when some activists started pursuing on that line of thinking, the license fee was abolished in this country. So there are models tried and tested. There are, there are uh, formats that, that, again, we can emulate, we can adapt. Thing is political will. And for that, we need to build up some public pressure. The, when you talk about state media, one of the words that keep coming up is politics. Now, why is it that we can't the disengaged state media from politics. Isn't there anything else that we, as ordinary people, are interested in other than politics? Why can't state media, for that matter, any media, write, report issues that are of interest to ordinary people that are not politics? Now, our reporting culture is overburdened. It's totally dependent on politics. We haven't invested on other f uh, reporting on issues that matter to our ordinary people. So if state media, or for that matter, any media, uh, keeps reporting on issues that matter to ordinary people, then they will, they, they will begin to trust that media. They will think, okay, these guys are giving us information that is valid to us. It could be on how the dengue uh, mosquito spreads, or it could be on where you can buy uh, the best deals when it comes to buying uh, sugar, or when it comes to buying uh, milk powder, whatever. But why can't we do that? For example, I mean, we talk about private media and state media. Look at the ITN 7.30 to 8.30 teledrama belt. How popular is that? Now, if state media can achieve something like that in entertainment, why can't you do that when it comes to reporting news? Now, that I think is, as a journalist who is working inside the industry, is where we need to answer. And that this is not a question only for state media and private media. I work with The Guardian. And every day, there are like, uh, constant discussions, where can we spend the money? How can we spend the money? Money is always in short supply. And how do we keep audiences glued to us or keep audiences coming back to us? And I, that is where journalists need to be more innovative, whether it's state media or private media. And coming back to training, I think training has to be targeted training. We've had, like, uh, from about 2002, when the peace accord was signed, until about 2005, there was like so much of training for journalists going on in this country. And we can judge for ourselves whether that has had an effect. I think training needs to be uh, targeted, and it needs to go down to simple things. For example, when I was teaching at the SLPI, one of the first uh, exercises you would give new uh, students who were coming in new was that write without using adverbs and adjectives. Trust me, many, many journalists cannot do that. Even I repeated that now. So these simple things like that. And now uh, we talked about how handheld devices are the, the next kind of platform of news reporting. We all agree on that. But 
on a uh, tablet or on a smartphone, right? The, the very rarely would people scroll up or down. So the idea is that how many words would fit into that screen? Let's say 150, let's say 200. How do you write the January story that happened in Sri Lanka where there was a government change and how do you write that in 150 words? You can, but to do that you need proper training. I think likewise you need to target training and not just keep doing training just for the sake of doing training. Sure, thanks. This, uh, uh, I know Sanjana, I think you had a, uh, you had a question. Does anyone else have a question? Maybe, we, maybe we'll take Sanjana's question and wrap it up. I wanted to ask all three panelists. Um, there's been some discussion around Mr. Jayampati Vikramaratna, Mr. Shirad Laktilak yesterday, um, and many of the other keynote speakers around, uh, both from the government's perspective, as well as from civil society, this need and emphasis on public consultation. Uh, moving forward into the coming months where the government will undertake a process of constitutional reform and indeed, and in fact, as Mr. Vikram uh, uh, Jayampati said, um, a new and modern constitution. So that's what their intended aim and goal is. I was wondering what each of you thought the role of the media should be in that, uh, in that, in that process, in that period. Uh, and to get each of your uh, individual takes on what media can and should do. Um, as, as you know, this is not an old debate in one sense. There's, the jury is always out on whether it should be advocacy journalism that one should be uh, engaged in or whether journalism should be removed from advocacy around uh, any kind of issue. And that advocacy journalism also becomes very quickly partisan and partial. And as a consequence of advocating for a cause or issue, no matter how powerful and pertinent and topical, uh, the service of journalism is lost. On the other hand, the, the, the others would say that uh, this period requires media to step up to its responsibility and, and get people starting to think about such that we saw the media in South Africa during 94 and 96 thinking about the, the, that reform process. I asked this question also because I, <laughs> I read an editorial in a Sunday newspaper today and, it's, and I was quite depressed actually. It's a leading paper uh, and the editorial is... Uh, as another commentator on Twitter said, quite insightful, but I think quite insightful for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and uh, doesn't give uh, uh, its readers uh, uh, a framework with which to come to their own conclusions. I think it's, a, uh, it's an opinionated editorial that gives erroneous conclusions and misleads readers. Uh, and quite simply, I'm, I'm tired of this, you know, and, and it's quite depressing and distressing if this is the no, 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 not you, Lakshman, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's quite tired, depressing and distressing if this is the culture of the mainstream media. And we know that this is not new, but uh, going forward uh, into this new process, which I think is going to affect all of our lives and why the hell we are having these discussions over the course of the next, this week in particular, I want to know what each of your uh, take is on what the media writ large, huh? I mean, uh, media writ large should and could be doing. So, uh, Nalaka, maybe uh, this idea of uh, um, 
public consultation and uh, the role that the media has to play in sort of bringing, getting more voices heard regarding the constitutional reform ideas going forward? I mean, uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, the role that the media should play? Yes. Uh as I, was, as I was saying in my opening remarks, the, the term media has become much more diffused and, and democratized in the past 10, 15 years. So everybody is a journalist, everybody is a publisher, everybody can be uh, engaging in con conversations, and, and some do. Others listen. So even if you don't, even if certain people actively don't participate, and I'm here referring to the, the social media cacophony that, that is constantly out there, even if everybody does not participate, there are a lot of people who, who just follow and listen and hopefully take some of it in. And, and all that is, that is useful. What the established or mainstream media have been doing historically is a filtering process. They have, uh, for reasons of space and other limitations, as well as for certain agendas, the media industry filters, not just information but also opinions. What is published or what is let in is one set and then what is kept out is another set. So I think that that kind of filtering uh, is no longer possible to the same extent because there is a counter-narrative, there is a counter-conversation that is going on. I'm not even sure whether there are enough conversations in the mainstream media, which is still largely a one-way from the producers to the consumers kind of direction. But that apart, there is this uh, multiple narratives and conversations that are happening. And I think this once a generation thing, we seem to be on average uh, writing a new constitution once a generation. Uh, this opportunity in the coming months uh, would be a test, an interesting case study of how the mainstream media and the social civic media all rise to this challenge. So I, for one, am excited. I will surely play a part in these conversations and, uh, for example, bring out my own favorite topics like should this country have a secular state? I would keep on arguing, hopeless as it may seem, uh, that, that we should. So there are others. And for the first time, people like, people like me with my secular dreams would have a platform. I might get shouted down, but still for all, I'll have a platform. So watch this space, many spaces, and join as many conversations as our time and energies would permit. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I think we'll just uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up now in the next couple of minutes. And in doing so, I've asked uh, the panelists just to think about one or two sort of key points that they'd like uh, the audience to sort of ponder on in going home. And I'll uh, start with Amanta. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to Sanjana's question about... Uh, Sorry, of course. Uh, uh, the, about... Uh, the, 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 what role can, can media play in this? In this instance, this whole, you know, uh, our media being 
on the drip drip hook of uh, politics, it can work to our advantage. So we have fairly good journalists who are probably attuned and connected to politicians, what's going on in politics. We have all these weekly political columns, all that. Well, people can keep re reporting on what is going on in the parlors of power, right? And what are the discussions? So that the larger audience understands this is what is going on. And you do the journalism part of reporting. And I always also feel that advocacy does have a role in media as long as you are clear about it. You know, you can do the flag waving as long as your flag is up there and fluttering, not when you hide it, so that your audience understands this is advocacy journalism. Your editorial page can have an opinion, and it should be clearly that. And I think that, that, that does, it, it brings in the diversity of all these things. I mean, people can have their own opinion. And also, we can use the media to give voice to people's own views about what constitutional change is all about. I mean, you just said that you found it utterly surprising that the amount of knowledge people had about our constitution, our parliament, how it works. Well, let's find out. Do people know about what, what this whole constitutional change is? Do people, are, are they even aware how many amendments have gone through? Right? What kind of a constitution do we have? I mean, you were talking about that how this structure cannot stand on itself. Fine. I mean, we have, what, 20 million people in this country? And of them, like how many, I mean, I, I suppose the majority can walk down the street without getting knocked down by a car. But are they aware that they are standing or in a kind of constitutional environment which is kind of breaking down? Let's give them space. And, and finally, I think my final kind of thoughts would be, as a journalist, this whole... Uh, you know, change from January and now. I mean, yeah, everybody's happy about it. I mean, I'm really happy about it because uh, I can do my work without putting my family and my loved ones under constant stress. I think let's use this. As a journalist, that's what I keep telling colleagues and others, just so that we can improve the standards of reporting of media in this country. Uh, keep pushing boundaries now that you have the chance to do that. Now that you have a, a, a government which says, okay, we are open to criticism. Let's criticize them and see what they are going to tell us about it. And I think, you know, I mean, I was talking to Sanjana about, I have been reporting on families of the missing for about a decade now. And, and I'm also, uh, one of my pet subjects has been long-form journalism. And when you do long-form writing and you interview somebody for three hours and they tell you their entire life story and at the end of it they say, please don't put my name, uh, my village, my age, or my great-great-great-aunt's name. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just done. I can't write. Uh, and this is love, you know, really, really riveting story, but I can't write it. But now, after this change, about three weeks ago, I was in the East and I was interviewing this a lady whose husband has been missing for about, probably about five or six years. And not only she said, put my name, put my, all my details, she was in fact willing to take me to the place where her husband was abducted and tell me who she thinks abducted him, what that person's rank is, and where he's living right now. And to me that was like, wow. I mean, this person is not scared to tell me all this. Now, to me, that is a real-time change. Not that I'm going to put all those details, but that people are so open. And my uh, like humble uh, request to a lot of my colleagues is that use that. 
use that freedom that people now have, reflect that in our reporting, in what we do, so that the change that we all talk about, the change that we sometimes feel, is also reflected in our work. Yeah, I have little to add uh, to what I was just saying. Uh, shortly after the January 8 change, uh, somewhere in my writing I said this is an open moment for our country and our society as a whole. The thing with open moments is they don't stay open for very long and we have to seize that open moment. And particularly in terms of meaningful, substantial change, uh, such as in constitution making, the moment has to be seized and, and I hope that media will be part of that process. But I don't think personally that government should uh, try to achieve full consensus on everything. We are 20.8 million people, as many opinions, and I don't think on every little detail we'll be able to or we should aspire to have consensus uh, because then we can get bogged down in endless bickering. The bigger picture and the overall conceptual clarity and good checks and balances, those are the things I think we should go for. Uh, other things to be negotiated in any pluralistic society, there will be moments when we will have to agree to disagree. And, and I, I hope media will be also part of that, part of that process of negotiation and mediation. Yeah, actually, uh, <clears throat> Sandra, when you were completing your uh, uh, narration uh, and you came to the place where uh, the UDA was about to step in and demolish parliament, uh, that, at that point I thought about the necessary architecture of constitution making, you know. Uh, I, of course, I'm a long-time political activist and I have been, for example, monitoring how Nepal, uh, one of the ethnically most diverse societies uh, in the world, actually, uh, has been laboring over a constitution for a long time and now is just about to pass it. But there, there is a, uh, the Madeshis, who are another mix of people, are creating a fuss. Uh, for me, whether we like it or not, whether we plan it or not, in terms of politics and social activism, the news media industry is certainly going to package the constitutional building process. As an editor who has to make a product, I can assure you that I will be doing that. So that's my baseline. It's not my starting point, but it's, it's on, my, on my baseline. Uh, but as an activist, of course, I'm aware of the huge value and potential of the vast number of news, of media we have, starting with social media, going on to state TV and all that, uh, to facilitate, not say a, a constituent assembly, but a whole architecture. Right, starting from village level, maybe from Pradeshya Sabha, or from NGO social movements, interactions, uh, where social media and then uh, uh, local uh, provincial radio, for example, uh, start, and then regional newspapers, and then coming up to the national level, including public service media, which is not so dependent on advertising, 
to enable the largest spectrum possible of voices to be articulated. It doesn't necessarily mean full consensus, but the act of enabling articulation alone ensures satisfaction to, to large number of people. So it's for me, like uh, I think the three of us, it's going to be exciting. Thanks. So I uh, thank you to all three panelists. I think uh, in in summary, uh, what I could say is that just just a, just a couple of points which were, were really brought out here today. I mean, one thing is regarding this sort of shift of of power after January 2015, and the fact that um, despite that, there are still other fundamental things which have to be considered within the media and specifically the, uh, uh, the press, especially given our panelists. And one thing was this issue of analytical journalism. It's not that there are no, there are no journalists who are capable of doing that in, uh, across the different language press in Sri Lanka. It's just that there is a focus on reporting and not enough analytical journalism, not necessarily only politically, but across all different areas. And that is a key thing which I guess people like uh, Lakshman and others will, will have as, as a challenge in motivating their, their staff in the, in the future pushing forward. Um, another factor that we really touched on was this idea of social media driving innovation. But <laughs> what was quite interesting, I think that Amanta brought up, was this idea of, how the traditional media starts will need to rethink how they can break news on social media while still keeping tomorrow's news relevant. And that's a significant challenge, and I think that's something that we're going to, uh, I think, uh, with contributions like this, uh, um, and um, this idea of social media and traditional media actually working together as opposed to in parallel, these are things which will inevitably be addressed. Um, need, and one, uh, two further points. Uh, one was that clearly we've touched on in detail this idea of state media restructuring, and I think that's not the sort of thing that can be uh, addressed in as just sort of a, a small part of um, a, a, a wider conversation. But there is a clear desire to start seeing all of this sort of um, pro-democracy, good governance, ma um, the mandate of the president which it came in on in January, really reflecting in the way that the state media is um, functions. And that may well be also about how it is finally administered as well. But uh, no answers there, uh, but I think the, the issues have been raised. But, and finally, on, the, on my final point, I think this idea of as to whether this is a watershed moment or not. And whilst we've said that, it's, that uh, January 2015 has provided a watershed moment, we also still question whether the have the rules of the game actually changed? And arguably, the rules of the game haven't changed. And um, we're going to start seeing how the media, let's say, handles the upcoming constitutional reform debates. I think very importantly, even the right to information debate, how they handle the right to information debate, not only one thing being how they uh, act as a sort of conveyor of that message to the public and how that empowers the public, but also how it empowers them and how the media houses really use RTI, um, I mean, thinking ahead, is going to be a very, very important uh, point. But 
Um, anyway, I'd, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it there, but uh, thank you all very much for once again attending. Sorry it's gone a few minutes um, over time, but uh, I hope that uh, uh, you, you felt that the time was very well spent with our esteemed panelists. Thank you.